welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is December 1st, 2023. The countdown to the holiday season has begun, but we're going to take a look at a few of the big FDA stories that emerged in the final week of November. First up is a safety investigation. The FDA announced an alert about reports of T-cell malignancies with CAR-T therapies. This week, the agency said that clinical trial and post-marketing reports had been received describing T-cell malignancies, including chimeric antigen receptor positive lymphoma in patients treated with BCMA or CD19-directed autologous CAR T-cell immunotherapies. The products use lentiviral or retroviral vectors. The FDA said the issue is applicable to all currently approved products in that class, but that overall the benefits still outweigh the risks. So far, 19 reports of T-cell malignancies have been received, including 14 from the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System. All of the products involved also carry a class label warning of the potential for a secondary malignancy. And the FDA said that it continues to monitor the situation, but is not planning to convene an advisory committee meeting on the subject. So one of the biggest questions to ask now may be what this information or this investigation could mean for CAR-T therapies going forward, including those in use as well as in development. I'm curious if you all think that, uh, you know, the heightened safety scrutiny here, you know, what's what's going to happen with all that? Well, I think it's a interesting dilemma for uh, FDA, you know, first through kind of uh, at what point do they make this announcement? Was it the the 18th? Or should it have been the 20th? Uh, you know, sort of kind of what that uh, sort of kind of a, a threshold for uh, publicly disclosing all this stuff uh, um, was. Uh, uh, FDA considers a uh, CAR T uh, gene therapy. Um, it's not usually sort of kind of how uh, this sort of, kind of uh, popular uh, imagination thinks about uh, gene therapy. But uh, uh, to the extent that there are other theoretical risks with gene therapies, it may make the agency more aggressive in its post-marketing uh, requirements for those uh, uh, products. Uh, you know, because this theoretical risk uh, came to pass as well. You know, it does uh, change the. Uh, the risk-benefit uh, equation now, this is uh, no longer just something in labeling, but something uh, that uh, uh, patients are having to deal with as an uh, adverse event and an additional uh, uh, medical condition that they have to uh, um, resolve. So uh, the expansion into uh, um, uh, other therapeutic areas, uh, you know, will sort of kind of have a different uh, um, different balance to consider. Uh, you know, uh, it's not just a, a deadly cancer, but if there's something else that's sort of kind of that uh, um, they, they uh a sponsor's thinking about they have to sort of kind of uh, weigh that. So it's uh, very interesting to uh, think about uh, with all these unknowns, sort of how a uh, um, how a uh, company and a, uh, a regulator go about sort of making sure that they get all the data and uh, balance everything uh, uh, adequately. Yeah, I get the. I, I still, and maybe it's just because I'm not thinking about this the right way, or I'm just missing something. But I, I, I wonder what, like you said, what the the prompt was to put out this extra alert because the it's already in the label. So it's not like this is something that they had no idea was going to happen, and all of a sudden just you know came up. Um, I mean, this was something that they you know said was a risk or a known risk. So you wonder what kind of prompted them to say, again, there's this risk out there. The The other interesting thing is that um, our colleague, Sue Sutter, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today, um, who wrote the story, said that there was there were experts who weren't predicting much of an impact in oncology, 
but there could be more scrutiny of gene therapies, of other gene therapies. So you wonder if there's this will sort of impact the way that CBER goes about sort of kind of moving gene therapies to market faster. I mean, that's one thing that um, Peter Marx has talked a lot about is wanting to use the accelerated approval pathway and programs like the platform designation to kind of speed up the development of these um, therapies so they're available to patients, particularly in rare diseases, you know, knowing that there's going to be a long post-approval follow-up period for, for safety as well as, you know, maintaining efficacy. But you wonder if this kind of, whether it causes some reviewers a little more of a pause or causes some people to think differently. It's, you know, kind of an interesting question. I think it can't help but uh, slow things down, unfortunately, uh, you know, that this is now uh, top of mind to uh, so many folks uh, that are working on these things that uh, they're just going to have to have more discussions. And, uh, you know, probably uh, if they don't end up having longer development trials, they'll at least have to think about having longer development trials or uh, differently structured ones. And that uh, in and of itself uh, will slow things down and, uh, you know, going you know, back and forth with the agency about, uh, you know, what data we need, do we need to collect? What monitoring do we need to do? Uh, uh, post-market will uh, um, will never really just uh, make things uh, uh, slower, even if the actual uh, um, risks uh, don't uh, you know, derail any uh, development programs that uh, extended timelines for kind of has its own uh, um, hazards in terms of sort of the, uh, the extra cost and uh, um, opportunities that, uh, um, that are sort of uh, being passed up uh, as they have to do all this uh, additional work. You know, and, and it's it's interesting you brought up data because one other another thing I was thinking about, and partially because we ran a story today about uh, Dr. Caleb talking about this, was that, you know, you wonder if maybe payers' ears perk up a little bit when they see something like this. And, you know, do they get involved? Do they order, you know, do they push sponsors to do more studies of this or, you know, some, you know, things along those lines? I mean, it's similar to kind of, um, not the same idea, but, you know, Dr. Kaloff has been, has talked about, you know, wanting payers to kind of help in the post-marketing setting, gather the data that people, that practitioners and patients need. And, you know, not just in CAR-T therapies, but in, you know, everything, you know, everything where there are kind of lingering questions. You wonder if maybe, you know, I don't even know if, if they would even, you know, get involved at, in, you know, at some point in this. Well, certainly the, uh, I think everyone's sort of fervent hope that sort of uh, the postmortem will sort of kind of uh, answer all questions in a uh, seamless and uh, painless manner. I uh, don't think we're there yet and uh, won't be for some time, but this adds another, uh, um, another dimension to that uh, um, that desire. Yeah, it's an interesting story that I'm, you know, we're sure going to, uh, you know, to follow and, uh, you know, keep tabs on. Next, we're going to shift to drug advertising. Brenda, it looks like the FDA responded to a petition about background music. Yes, um, FDA, FDA denied um, Knowledge Ecology International's 2020 citizen position, and KEI had requested a total ban on the use of background music uh, while information about a drug's risks um, was being aired um, in TV and radio ads. 
and the agency waited to respond until it issued its final rule on the presentation of the major statement of a drug side effects and contraindications in TV and radio ads. And the rule on how to present them, this was the rule on how to present the major statement in a clear, conspicuous and neutral manner. And that was published on November 21st. And right after that, FDA issued its response to KEI. And the, the rule actually addressed music. They said the use of creative elements, which uh, in the major statement, including the use of music was okay. And FDA noted that even with this, without this final rule, its existing regulations um, were sufficient to deal with any problematic, <clears throat> problematic ads, any problematic use of music. And it told KEI that they're going to continue to determine um, if all the elements of an ad were 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 adequate on a case by case basis. So FDA could have responded to to the petition earlier. Um, it waited three years, and it seems to have wanted to have this extra rule to back up its its position in in its response to KEI. Um, and, and in fact, the agency noted several instances, examples of in which it issued enforcement letters um, to companies telling them that their presentation of risk information was undermined by the use of music or, or visuals. KEI had argued that having a ban, a complete ban on the use of music during the presentation would be easy to enforce, but FDA said that wasn't necessary. Its current approach was fine to catch violation. Yeah, I was saying, Brenda, your story had a nice uh, roundup of various other uh, citations that uh, FDA had done on, uh, you know, obtrusive music, and uh, um, it's, it seems like it's not a major focus for uh, the agency, perhaps not a major area of uh, uh, violations, but uh, the fact that uh, there was this petition and, and then, uh, um, you know, FDA, of course, had to respond means that sort of it'll be sort of another uh, continuing uh, uh, touch point in terms of what we're going to have what people argue about when they argue about the DTC advertising. Right. The the most recent instance in which they'd sent an enforcement letter was in 2019. And prior to that, it was 2016. And then they noted other examples that occurred in the early 200s. So it's not like um, it's not like this is a, occurring frequently. And, and I think companies just are, you know, aware of being careful about how they present risk information, given all given all FDA's um, statements on this and the past letters. So I guess we're still going to hear songs like Viva Viagra and Jardiance is really swell <laughs> going forward. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure I understand what the, the agency's position is now. I mean, they can still say like the background music has to be taken out, right? Because, I mean, you know, maybe, you know, like this jingle will be an earworm for millions of people. Please take it out, you know, or something. I mean, they wouldn't do that. But, you know, <laughs> I'm giving a silly example. I, I don't think they would. I, I'd have to go back and look at those um, past instances. But um, they may ask people to tweak, like um, the, the instance in 2019, they objected to Cooper Surgical's um, contraceptive ad that um, that used um, people dancing to music in the background. And so I don't know, I don't recall exactly what they asked them to do on that, but um, it, it's not getting rid of music, but maybe like making it if, it, if it's distracting from the risk information, 
maybe changing changing it so the risk information is 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 isn't uh, undermined. I was gonna say I get the I get the image of like the the father like shaking his fist at his you know do- as his kid upstairs you know <laughs> playing the stereo too loud yelling turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're not privy to sort of what uh, FDA says to, uh, you know, companies when they, uh, you know, submit their ads. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a kind of a contemporaneous thing. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the preview is not necessary for, uh, um, for all uh, um, products. But uh, you could imagine them saying, like, you know, uh, make this uh, less loud uh, here so that it's easier to uh, understand what the, what the words are saying or things like that. And uh, you know, FDA sort of kind of wants to... Uh, preserve its flexibility, I guess, as it does with, uh, with all things. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, they're not saying that uh, any kind of music is okay uh, uh, during any portion of a DTC ad, but they're not saying it's uh, um, absolutely uh, banned either. The, 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 the agency made a point <clears throat> of saying in the letter to KEI that, that music was okay, including upbeat music. Brenda, does this sort of thing dip into the kind of the First Amendment sort of issues that, you know, OPDP has, you know, you know, dealt with over the last I, few years or no? I don't think so. That's mo- that's been focused on what they can say about a product. Um, okay. In terms of its efficacy. Well, thanks, Brenda. It's a really, uh, it's a really interesting issue. Uh, you know, something you see probably every day, but no, you don't really think about all that much. So. Finally, we're going to revisit the upcoming departure of Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock. Commissioner Robert Califf announced this week that Namanji Bumpus, currently the agency's chief scientist, would become principal deputy commissioner when Woodcock leaves. Bumpus is going to inherit some of Woodcock's projects, including the reorganization of the Human Foods Program and Office of Regulatory Affairs. She's also going to help uh, manage day-to-day agency operations. There's no word yet on from the agency on who will become the chief scientist when, when Bumpus takes the new role. So I was curious how you all think this transition is going to go. Bumbus has to step in for an agency legend. We all we went through that last week last week's episode, although not into the role that made her the legend. So Caliph is confident that Bumpus can handle this. Do, I mean, are you all convinced that she you know that uh, she's going to make a good principal deputy? Well, I um I'm. I'm very aware of, um, of uh, Dr. Bumpus from her um, response to Intarsia. Um, Intarsia um, was appealed um, a co- complete response letter that Cedar issued for its ITCA um, drug device combination, and um, and very interesting. And I, it, I, the first of its kind decision, she allowed them to uh, to have a public hearing on this their 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 fight with Cedar. Um, and it took the form of an advisory committee meeting um, instead of uh, in, in lieu of a formal evidentiary hearing. And so that was a victory for them in this long battle with Cedar. And now she's actually going to decide that the advisory committee voted 19 to zero that the benefits of this product don't outweigh its risks. I mean, the risks don't outweigh its benefits. I mean, sorry, the benefits don't outweigh the, the risk, and she is um, going to make the final decision on whether that's true. They, she said that she would take the advisory committee's decision as a, a recommendations as a preliminary decision, and she'd make a final decision with input from a small group of advisors. So that that's a 
a very interesting battle that she's been at the center of. Yeah, I was a little curious in in terms of, you know, if this isn't resolved by, you know, early next year, whenever it is that she actually um, becomes principal deputy commissioner, if that kind of stays on her plate or if, you know, she does it, you know, if she gives it to somebody or somebody else takes it or how that works, um, you know, because the, like you said, that's a really, you know, a big case and interesting one that people are kind of, you know, watching really closely. Yeah, it's a, uh, a, a obviously a very difficult role to uh, to step into. Uh, um, you know, it, it may not be sort of kind of the uh, the performance of a lifetime uh, like uh, uh, Janet Woodcock's uh, uh, leadership of uh, Cedar was for so many years, but uh, you know she's still having to complete projects that she did not begin and sort of kind of are not going to sort of kind of uh, bear her stamp in the same way that they would had she uh, conceived them to uh, to begin with. And then obviously, uh, you know, we don't know what the next uh, months or even years may bring in terms of uh, new public health crises, and she's going to have to deal with them uh, in this uh, high position, having not been at the agency for uh, for as many years. But uh, you know, as Brenda was mentioning, uh, um, she's obviously uh, uh, very uh, careful about listening to, uh, to all uh, all opinions, and uh, that's going to uh, serve her well uh, um, in terms of her dealing with the you know, the problems of implementing these uh, reorganizations and. Uh, um, whatever uh, crisis may uh, may come next. Yeah, I'm also curious on, you know, kind of if she has the time, one, or, you know, kind of is able to kind of carve out her own, like, neat little niche projects, um, you know, like with things we talk about with the commission, when the new commissioner comes in, like, you know, they're going to have their own agenda of things, which will probably be overrun by, cri- you know, various crises or whatever, but senior officials tend to have their little kind of pet issues that they like to deal with. Um, Dr. Bumpus has talked about several things. She's, you know, she's kind of been in charge of um, implementing uh, cosmetic uh, reforms to the cosmetic divisions, cosmetic um, uh, regulatory divisions within FDA. And she's kind of raised that issue as uh, a way to kind of fight health disparities. She's talked about a little bit about advisory committee forums. She's talked about clinical trial diversity. You know, you wonder if, you know, kind of, you know, Dr. Woodcock liked to talk about, you know, uh, issues like clinical trial reform and 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 so forth when she wasn't, um, you know, doing the, you know, dozens of other things she had to do. So I'm curious if, if Dr. Bumpus maybe carves out, you know, kind of her own little pet issues that she like, you know, she brings up at speaking engagements and and so forth. Yeah, that's a great uh, point, uh, Derek. I mean, one of her uh, areas of focus so far seems to have been uh, health equity. Uh, uh, our colleague, uh, Sergeant Carlos Smith, had a great uh, um, interview with her uh, a little while ago about uh, how, you know, organs on a chip can uh, can help with that, that issue. And, uh, you know, you see her that through line with her, her kind of efforts to uh, improve cosmetic safety, uh, you know, for certain products that are used by, uh, um, uh, you know, by certain groups uh, more than others. And, uh, you know, I think this will just give it, uh, um, you know, a greater uh, a greater stage on which to uh, to work. And as you say, that uh, you know, because she will have uh, more responsibilities in uh, more areas and more opportunities to engage with more people, that uh, um, that is something that she can uh, push in all those different forums. Yeah, obviously, we're uh, we'll be watching closely as um, you know, Dr. Bumpus, you know, transitions from chief scientist to principal deputy commissioner, and you know, we'll be watch waiting for the FDA to. Who kind of name Dr. Bumpus's successor um, as in the uh, the chief scientist's office as well? So 
the uh, interesting time here over the next few weeks. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks, thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with, with Brenda Sandberg and Matt Hobbs. Take care and we'll see you next time. 